This is an appeal for the release of my husband, Jackie Mann. It is now one year since I walked into my Beirut flat on that terrible Friday evening of May the 12th and realized that Jackie had been kidnapped and I had to face life alone. He'd been snatched off the streets after a visit to the British bank and disappeared as though the earth had swallowed him up. No videotapes, no calls from uh, ransom money, and no identity of the kidnappers. And to this day, I have no positive proof that he's alive or dead. The voice there of Sunny Mann as she pleads for her husband's release. Jackie was taken hostage on the 12th of May 1989 and held for 865 days in solitary confinement. He was held not by the pro-Iranian Hezbollah, as was reported at the time, but by a splinter PLO group calling themselves the Union of Palestinian Refugees. To this day, Jackie Mann is not sure why he was taken captive, except for the fact that he was perhaps in the wrong place at the wrong time. But what of his wife, the exuberant Sonny? Born in Somerset and christened Dillis Pritchard, she married young, at the tender age of 17, to a friend of her father. His name was John Wilson and he was 39. Out of this marriage she bore a daughter Jennifer, a honeymoon baby, something Sonny wasn't at all ready for. It was a difficult labour and ended Sonny's chances of any more children when a hysterectomy was necessary. This marriage was over in three years. Later, with the outbreak of the Second World War, liaisons were a spur-of-the-minute decision, so at 20 she married yet again after only a three-day relationship, a major in the Royal Marines, Keith McWhirter. Sadly, Keith was killed in action two months later, though Sonny would readily admit that their marriage would never have lasted. It was while dancing to the hit song Yours by Vera Lynn at a ball in the Dorchester on New Year's Eve that sparked a romance that lasted half a century. Yours till the stars lose their glory. At that time, the great uh, Sir Archibald McIndoe, the first real plastic surgeon at that time, had started a, a hospital down at East Quinstead for the badly burnt pilots and co-pilots and, and all the RAF. Um, I had a great friend then, Paddy Naismith. He's died tragically since, but um, and we thought that we should try and do something to rehabilitate these boys because they looked dreadful. I mean, new faces, and I mean, they really looked grotesque. It's the only word I can use for it at that time. So we thought the best thing was to build up their morale. We talked to the people at the, the Dorchester and 55 Park Lane and they all agreed to cooperate and Dorchester gave a couple of rooms once a month for a boys' day and we started having them up. We got our most attractive girlfriends and we used to have dinner with them and dance with them, you know, to get them to feel normal again. And Jackie was one of the first of the batches who came up. <laughs> Sonny knew all the right people mixed with the right set and to help in the war effort had worked for St. John's Ambulance. I was a, a temporary driver. You know, when somebody had been uh, injured or they were sick, I was called out. Well, I mean, it was... How can you describe it? I mean, some injuries was nothing at all. You just stayed around and you didn't do anything. 
other evenings something went wrong and I mean you just went nobody ever thought about why we were going or you just went as fast as you could to the whoever anybody was injured but frankly after going through the wars in Lebanon now I found that far worse than anything I had in during the Second World War everybody had to do something in in those days and as I was ambulance on temporary ambulance driving and they couldn't push me into the forces so um, they thought well they'd relieve some girl and I could take her place so they they sent me along to Harrods I was supposed to go and work there and let somebody else join the ATA or or Renz or something anyway I arrived there went in and asked uh, I said I have an appointment with so-and-so and the doorman looked at me and he said um, you don't come in through the front door he said staff entrance for for you I was absolutely horrified I couldn't leave my ears anyway I was pushed round to the staff entrance and then uh, interviewed and the lady said well now she said um, what can you do I said, well, I don't want to know. What do you want me to do? Well, she said, uh, can you serve in haberdashery? I said, no, no, I don't think so. I said, no, I can't see myself cutting yards of tape or elastic or something. Oh, well, she said, then um, how about working the cash register? I said, no, I'm very bad arithmetic. I said, I know I'd be useless. Well, she said, you are rather, aren't you? She said, I don't know what we can do with you. And then she turned around and she said, ah, she said, I had an idea. You've got a lovely figure and you're very pretty, she said. How would you like to do some modeling? Well, I said, yes, that sounds better. So um, she said, report to the fur department to Mr. Jacob. And I duly reported to the fur department. Mr. Jacob took one look at me and said, yes, dear, you'll do very nicely. And. Uh, I spent oh, over a year there all the time trying to avoid Mr. Jacob, who his great aim was, he would say now, model the mink today, dear. Okay, yes. And then he said, now, come here, he said, come a little closer. It's not hanging quite right, just at the top there. So by the time he'd fiddled around there, I was ready to kick him. Anyway, I managed there, and actually it was, uh, in a way, quite fun. Not cut out for work in Harrods, she opted for marriage, and after the war they moved to Beirut. Jackie had managed to get a job with Middle East Airlines. Things were going well and sunny with her love of horses, opened a riding school. In the early 70s, the troubles began, and although repeatedly warned by the British authorities to leave Beirut, Sonny and Jackie stayed on. Despite the conditions, it was, after all, their home. There was no electricity, very little water. I mean, everything you wanted, you you had to go out and find. Electricity meant there was no lift, and as our apartment was on the fifth floor, it meant I was carrying everything up 99 stairs, I counted them, three and four times a day, which, of course, in the heat of the summer was absolutely exhausting.
Sonny was always worried that Jackie would be taken hostage. This was natural in the circumstances, but also as she herself had got caught up in a case of mistaken identity. That was at the very beginning of the war. There was um, a number two to Arafat. At that time, Arafat was in, in Beirut. He had, he had all their own uh, buildings and everything else there. And this man, Salah, he used to go every day to a particular shop to have a shave and a massage and that. And one day, somebody, they parked a, a, a car, packed with explosives outside the shop and detonated by remote control when he came out and he was killed. Well, uh, the witnesses had seen that it was a blonde woman who had parked the car. And unfortunately, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. My riding school was very close to what was called Arafat land, where they, all the Palestinians were. And as I was driving home from the club, I had no idea what had happened. I mean, everybody heard the explosion, but I didn't know what. And I suddenly found two cars, one in front, one behind, men with guns pulling up, and, and that was it. They were convinced I was the blonde, you see, who'd, who'd parked the car. Luckily, I had my husky dog with me at that time, who was very possessive of me, and the man tried to, he put his arms through the window to pull me out of the car, and the husky got him in the arm and hung on. The man was yelling and screaming. And uh, eventually I called Husky off. But uh, they didn't attempt anymore to get me out of the car, but I had to drive, one in front, one behind, right into Arafat land, which was terrifying. At one point, somebody actually stopped you in the street and told you that Jackie was dead. Yes, that was very difficult moment, but um, I didn't know whether to believe him or not. I mean, I hadn't heard a word about Jackie for, it was almost two years then, nothing. So I, you know, in one way, I wasn't so completely surprised because I thought, well, you know what, after almost two years of, of not knowing, it was easy to believe that he might have been dead. I think he is close by. I think he's uh, somewhere in the southern suburbs. I begin to wonder if he, if he knows I'm passing, because he'd be in an underground room with probably just one little slit uh, type of window. I, I think he knows. I hope he knows. Walking the streets of Beirut without really knowing, desperation set in. Sonny contemplated suicide, but she was pulled back by a close friend, a journalist then working for ITN. And the phone rang, and it was Brent. And I hadn't heard from him for perhaps a month. He hadn't been able to get through with all the shelling and everything. That particular psychological second, he telephoned. And that was it. I mean, Brent did exactly the right thing. 
instead of being sympathetic and that, you know, he said, what the hell do you think you're doing? Everything you've been through, all you've gone through, he said, now you're going to, to give up? He said, you're a coward, and that was enough for me. <laughs> in Beirut, before the war in 1979, to some it would have seemed like a paradise. It was called the jewel of the Middle East, and it cer- certainly was. There was everything there that anyone could ever want. Uh, marvellous scenery, skiing, water skiing, beautiful beaches, swimming, casino, nightclubs, lovely hotels, I mean everything. You were, I can't think a single thing that wasn't there. But after Jackie was kidnapped actually, you had great problems with regard to money. Well, uh, yes, very much so, because unfortunately, all the accounts were in his name. I mean, we we had a joint account originally, but it uh, needed re-signing. And every time we thought of going down to re-sign, the bomb started again, and then the bank closed. So in the end, I was left uh, literally with nothing. I couldn't use any of our three accounts at all. And it was I just lived on help and charity from friends and kind people in England who sent small donations and things for the first year. Were you particularly annoyed by the the lack of action by the British government on Jackie's behalf? Well, uh, I certainly thought that they weren't doing enough. They could have done more than they were doing. I mean, uh, Mrs. Thatcher was so adamant over the fact that nothing would make her uh, talk with a kidnappers or anything. And in, in the end, I mean, it was just a deadlock. Nothing was happening at all. But when John Major became prime minister, things began to change. I mean, he sent his uh, um, industry of state, Douglas Hogg, out to Beirut, whom I met uh, two or three times. And you know, he was very hopeful and, and said things were changing and the government were prepared to do a bit more now to get the hostages released. It's the news at one. This is Shane Kenny. The headlines this lunchtime, the freed hostage Jackie Mann is due back in Britain. Details from Imro Kelly. The hostage Jackie Mann, freed by his Lebanese kidnappers yesterday, is due back in Britain within the next half hour. Mr Mann and his wife Sonny left the Syrian capital Damascus last night, but their journey was delayed when their plane was diverted to Cyprus with a technical fault. They're now due to arrive shortly at the RAF base at Lynham in Wiltshire. It's PM at 5pm with Hugh Sykes and Valerie Singleton. Tonight, Jackie Mann returns home to a hero's welcome, but how near are we to further hostage releases? Good evening. The new summary is read by Brian Martin. Mr Jackie Mann is now resting at RAF Lynham in Wiltshire after his flight from the Middle East and two and a half years as a hostage in Lebanon. 
when he and his wife Sonny came down the steps of the RAF VC-10, a Spitfire flew overhead, a salute to the former Battle of Britain pilot. The doctors are generally pleased with his condition, but it's likely that he'll stay at Lynham for several days at least. Jackie Mann is now in the cockpit of the Spitfire. On his face is a look of pure delight as he takes in the control... With extraordinary press interest in his recovery, photo opportunities were arranged under the watchful eye of his psychiatrists. These also gave Jackie a chance to ease himself back into the public eye. This is Line and Press Information Bulletin number 10, timed at 5.15 on Thursday, the 3rd of October, 1991. He spent 15 minutes in the cockpit and showed phenomenal recall of events from over 48 years ago. As a Spitfire pilot, Jackie was shot down six times. His worst accident was when he had flown a flaming Spitfire across the Channel from France to avoid capture by the German forces. From this, he suffered severe burns and later total blindness for a number of days, with facial reconstruction necessary. The likelihood of being shot down again on his next mission was always a possibility, but it was the fear of being taken prisoner of war that was always in the back of his mind. Uh, that prisoner of war thing goes back to my childhood uh, when my mother's parents had a family get-together. My brother had uh, two sisters and five brother, brothers. Uh, all the brothers were in the army in the First World War and one of them was taken prisoner. And um, on one occasion he escaped with two friends. And they used to recount that the uh, um, mothers, my grandparents, had this family reunion, and the five brothers were there talking about the experiences and that sort of thing. And, and uh, the one that impressed me most of all was the one who was taken prisoner of war. And I say he was uh, he escaped with two friends, but they were recaptured shortly afterward. After they escaped, they were walking down the road one day uh, early in the morning and uh, a German national came toward them and said good morning in German which one of them immediately responded to good morning which gave it all away and so they were recaptured. That all stuck in my mind so that one thing that uh, always had a back in my mind a horror of being a prisoner of war. If you can just take me back to the day that you were actually kidnapped, you were just heading to the bank, is that right? Uh, no, I'd been to the bank, and uh, a little furore in the bank where one, uh, obviously a Lebanese or Palestinian, made a bit of a fuss there, which attracted my attention. And it occurred to me afterward that uh, he might have been there as it were spying on me and this little story created was just to uh, keep him there a bit longer but um, anyway I finished my transaction at the bank and walked back to my car which was uh, five or six hundred yards away and uh, anyway I got into my car and started to drive away and as I did so, uh, a big, either big American car 
for that's Mercedes. And that pulled out in front of me and stopped me going that way. And then four or five youngish men got out of this car and at least three of them are holding handguns. And uh, the windows of the car were closed. And uh, they were hammering on the door and that sort of thing. So I opened the door. I thought they were just after the money. I'd cashed at the bank. Uh, no, kidnapping never occurred to me. Anyway, they pulled me out and uh, they'd opened the boot of the car and uh, one would grab me by the legs and the other by the shoulders and they lifted me up and put me in the boot of the car and one of them climbed in the back of the car with me. It was a big boot and uh, had a gun at me and we just drove away. At what point did it dawn on you that this could go on for quite some time, that this could be a long drawn out affair? Oh, not really for several days. I really thought they were half the money. Uh, initial money I'd cashed the bank. Uh, which I'd got some money with me when I went to the bank and I cashed a cheque for 150 sterling. So I got about, perhaps about 200 pounds sterling. And I thought it was just that uh, after. And it was about uh, four or five days. They had a meeting of themselves. And uh, I thought it presumably concerned me. And then one of them came back into the room and said, it's not enough. So they wanted more money than 200. And that was when it. Uh, I assumed that they were holding me for ransom. Some of the people who were holding you captive were nicer than others. Some treated you with a little bit of dignity. But they were basically quite rough with you. And on one occasion, I know, your glasses were broken. And they showed you a photograph of Sonny with some headlines underneath it, but they wouldn't bring it close enough to you so that you could read it. Is that right? Um, well, they brought me a photograph which I said was Sonny, but with my glasses broken, I couldn't really identify her. But they wouldn't let me hold the, the... It was a newspaper photograph. They wouldn't let me hold it so I could adjust it to my vision. They just held it somewhere here when I couldn't identify her. And uh, so really, I don't know if it was Sonny or not, but I'm sure it was. I wouldn't have shown it to me. They told you horrible things at one point. They told you that she'd run off with a, another man. Oh, they told me that several times. They'd gone off. She'd gone off to Germany with a German friend, and they'd gone off. Uh, she'd gone off to England with a, my best friend. They had you chained to most of the time, isn't that right? Um, I was chained whilst I was being moved, and the chains were on for the first day or two. Uh, but they were a heavy chain and wrapped in a figure eight down my ankles, and I protested at that. And uh, when one of the senior men came in, and he, he had it taken off, 
and actually the chair was left lying on the floor but it was not used again until I was moved the second time uh, where I was trained but that was after I'd uh, made my well, gone to the window across the room trying to look out and uh, they'd actually seen me doing that and then they changed, changed the floor and I was chained then all, all day and all night of course uh, the remainder of the time excepting for the last week before my release what was your main worry um, about Jackie if you knew that you, he would come back safe and sound to you what was your main fear? Well, I was afraid about uh, his mental state. Obviously, after being chained up and kept in solitary confinement for almost three years, I was afraid perhaps that he'd have some type of mental relapse, but not of it. I mean, his memory was better than mine at times. He could remember back things that I didn't more or less forgotten and that but it's the the physical side now which is so bad well he had obviously deteriorated physically but it is the memory of the psychological trauma that he now finds difficult to come to terms with one day one of them came in and uh, said to me uh, what is poisson and i thought remember i don't speak french fluently I thought he meant fish, and uh, I tried to explain what a fish was, so he couldn't, uh, couldn't think of the Arabic word. <coughs> he went out and came back with the word poison written. I said, that's poison, which he understood. And then I thought, well, they're going to poison me. So uh, after I took precautions whenever they brought food or drink in and uh, I overheard them talking and I gathered that it took about 25 minutes for whatever it was to become effective. I just uh, drank half this stuff and oh, they'd installed their, a video camera in the room so they could watch me the entire time without having to come in, into the room and I would put half of the cup of tea behind a plastic bottle which is standing there so they couldn't see it and then I'd drink it in the morning. They brought me a plate of, um, I call it stew of some kind, with a large plate of green salad. And for some reason I was suspicious of this because it was rather better than the food I'd been having. I ate the plate of stew, but I didn't, didn't touch the salad. And eventually they cleared it away. And there was a, a doctor, an American doctor actually, who had attached himself to them. He would not be any member of the group, I think. Uh, he was having a favour with one of the females who used to come to the place. 
Anyway, he, I heard him say that he should have eaten the salad, which again so it confirmed my suspicions. Third or fourth time they tried, that was when I pretended to go to sleep. And uh, after about five or ten minutes lying motionless, pretending I was asleep, uh, four or five of them came into the room and uh, they turned me, so they took my chain off and uh, I admired just a fraction and the man I disliked, who was the leader of the group, was standing there unbuttoning his trousers and undoing his belt, that sort of thing. And that moment I uh, made a definite movement which showed I wasn't uh, completely out and this man panicked and rushed out of the room. Sonny, if you came face to face with Jackie's captors, what would you say to them today? Oh, <laughs> I doubt if I'd say anything. I think I would probably, if I had a, a knife in my hand, I'd probably stick it in them where it hurt most. No knife, I'd probably kick. That's the way I feel about them. After all those days, I believe, you'd been marking on the wall each day as the days went by. Uh, not all the days. Um, first week I didn't bother. I didn't think it'd be anything like, oh, but uh, when I was moved the first time, be quiet, listen. One of them came in, as it were, to interview me. But he was a very, very friendly person. In fact, I almost liked him. Um, he came to see me twice. And, uh, I said, how long are you going to hold? I asked him, how long are you going to hold me? And he thought for a moment, he said, I don't know. Uh, maybe two, three months, maybe longer, probably longer. And it was then I started to keep a little calendar on the wall, a very simple thing. Um, day one, day two, day three, Day four, day five, day six, day seven, and then another seven days and so on. And I kept that going for about uh, two or even three months until one day one of them came in and saw it. Of course, they were quite small. And oh, he panicked all over the place and called his men in, they came with scrubbing brushes and scrubbed the whole thing out. Thereafter, I had to keep it in my head. The time when you had hoped that Jackie was to be released and it actually turned out that it was John McCarthy. How did you cope on an occasion like that? Frankly, I can hardly remember now how I coped. I mean, I was so upset and so desperate of it because we'd been, I'd been assured by them Asador and various newspaper people and everything else that it was going to be Jackie. And we were was all packed and ready and we were at the embassy waiting. The cars were there, the guards were there. We were just waiting for the green light to go to Damascus. And I remember I'd been out with Brent was there
I've been out with Brent to get a, a quick meal. And we came back, and uh, John Tucknott, who's number two in uh, in Beirut to the best, I saw his face when we walked in. And he said, Sonny, he said, it's not going to be. Jackie said, it's John McCarthy. And for the first time, I just burst into floods of tears. <laughs> I've wept all over John. I've soaked Brent's coat. And I was really at my last breath at that time. It was the worst thing I'd gone through. Jackie, being the type of man he is, tried to escape whenever the opportunity arose. One night I found that the chain on my legs uh, was loose. Um, if that's a link of a chain, a link and so on, uh, they would uh, put their small padlock through the link like that so it couldn't move. But on this occasion they put it round so I could pull the whole chain through the half of the lock. And I found I could get my legs free. So uh, I waited until about three in the morning and so I hadn't had some sort of party that night. So I waited until about three in the morning until they were all asleep and uh, stepped out in the corridor and started to walk to where I remember the, how, how the door was. But I got fairly close to that. Then someone stepped out of an office with a gun in his hand and said, what are you doing? So I'm on the toilet. So all he said to get back, get back. But he couldn't do anything with a man holding a gun. So I'm on the toilet. So he took me to the toilet and then put me back in the room and locked the door firmly. You're going back to Beirut next week, I heard you say that earlier, and you'll have a guard with you. But do you get actually nervous to return to Beirut? I'm always uh, a little nervous, yes, because I'm on the wanted list there. You see, I've talked far too much. I gave far too many interviews. I wrote a, my first book, there, Holding On. I've mentioned a lot of names. And um, I am at, and having had one go when they took Tara, and afterwards, I was followed for days and days on end by a, a man in a red Honda car. Kept following me wherever I went, and, and then would come round the flat at night, knocking on the door, and I've seen telephone calls. And you know, I am n nervous. I only go when the ambassador there says, you know, I can give you a guard the whole time. I stay with with them at the embassy there. I'm always a bit nervous about going back. Sonny and Jackie have now made their home in Cyprus and they keep in contact with their good friend and Sonny's ally through the bad times, Brent Sadler. But how do they get on? <laughs> we do have our clashes on things like that. After all, I had to look after myself for three years, try to exist, try, try to live, try to shop and then everything else with the shells falling all around me all, all day. So beforehand, I didn't, I couldn't even uh, change a gas bottle because Jackie was always there. I had to learn that. Also, I had to learn how, how to use a screwdriver when 
that things were falling apart. I mean, you know, I got very, I had to be very independent too. So um, it takes a little time for both of us to adjust, but we're doing fine. <laughs> I do, because I need me orders all the time. I wouldn't call it a duck to taskmaster, but certainly watches me closely and gives me something to do all the time, or as I think of it, interferes with what I am doing. Since Jackie's release, um, what has been the main thing that's worried you? Well, mainly his health, of course. I mean, he had this uh, bad attack of uh, um, pneumonia and was almost dead. And of course, after that, after coming back, he had to relapse again and had to go into a clinic here. And I mean, he just is not recovering. I should. I mean, mentally, he's absolutely hundred percent. But I think if you you listen to him talking, he talks. He can hardly talk, and he can barely walk. You see, walk very, very slowly, and like a very old man. And. Um, He's not gaining any weight, as he should be doing. To me, he looks very well from so, from somebody who's just seen him today for the very first time. He looks great. He eats very well, but he's just not gaining any weight. It's mainly health, because it is. That's why I've, I say, for past seven and a half months now, I haven't barely moved away from here because I haven't been able to leave him. I thought, you know, I'm. They wouldn't have been so bad after all. Everyone else, Brian and John and Teddy Waite and Tom Sutherland, I mean, everybody, they were together uh, the majority of the time. John was on his own for the first uh, 10 or 11 months. But after that, I mean, he was with Brian most of the time. And they had a, a radio at the end and they had books to read. And they had, I mean, and they could talk to somebody. Jack, you see, had nothing. And he was just chained like a bloody dog to the, to the wall. Nothing, nothing. You've had a terrible time. Nobody would wish anything like this on their worst enemy. But if you can just tell me what is so special, what is so great about freedom for you today? <laughs> well, I don't think I can survive it, really. And no one who's been, who's not been knocked away, uh, as I was, or as any prisoner was, uh, for a long period of time, can really describe what freedom means. So it means a great deal. What did you actually feel like the first time you knew you were going to see Jackie, when you knew he was just inside that room? No feelings. I mean, you know, it, it, it had been so long, and everything was, I mean, Frankly, I don't think either of us spoke. I, you know, we just <laughs> just put our arms around each other, and, and I think uh, that was that. It was too emotional, the first moment. Was she still the same to you? Well, she uh, obviously entirely the same. She's a little bit younger, maybe. <laughs> but uh, that's all right, I had preparation, as it were, by the British ambassador in Damascus and his wife, who were extremely good. And uh, they told me she'd be there in about half an hour. And 
so that I did have a half an hour, as it were, to get accustomed to the idea of seeing her. She was immensely loving. And we were closer then than they had been for many years, in fact. Did you actually feel, during all those long 865 days, that Sonny would be there for you? Um, well, I always, uh, one of my holding uh, points, as it were, that she would be there. Uh, not necessarily in Beirut, but sometime after my release, I would see her. Tell me about this song that was very special for you both. Now that, yes, that was uh, created in that by Vera Lynn. She used to sing it to the troops. It was uh, one of the great songs at that time. And Jackie and I sort of adopted it as our song. And every time we were at the Dorchester, immediately we stood up to dance or anything. The band would play yours till the stars lose their glory. And it's always been our tune ever since. Yours till the stars lose their glory. Yours till the birds fail to sing. Just 